Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. And what a lot we've got to talk about in the short time available. What do I mean short time available? I've got 24 hours each day at home. But anyway, in the relatively short time you've got available to listen, we've got to get through the latest implications of the pandemic, which I think are so interesting, and the landslide victory of Keir Starmer in the Labour contest, which is also very significant in my view for reasons I'll talk about shortly. But first to the pandemic. What's so interesting is that for those of us who covered all the various attempts, first by um, Tony Blair, but in a much more accelerated way by David Cameron to, in their words, reform the NHS, we've watched with great interest how ministers now in the context of this crisis try and pull levers and find it very hard to recognise what levers to pull and whether there's anything at the end of those levers. Because the problem, especially with the coalition's reforms of the NHS, and by the way, the more I think about it, I think the 2010 to 2015 coalition wins in quite a competitive field the worst government since 1945. So many of the measures they passed, usually with uh, great approval from much of the media, have proved catastrophic in their consequences, from the fixed-term Parliament Act to real-term spending cuts as a response to the 2008 financial crash, which, remember, was a banking crisis. It wasn't actually a public spending crisis. But the NH reforms from that era are up there too because what they did was to fragment. They were well-intentioned in the sense that their aim was to empower the patient and in their original form there was no responsibility at all for the health secretary to have any kind of accountability in relation to the NHS. It was all going to be devolved to mediating agencies and ultimately the patient. And David Cameron claimed when it all started to go wrong that he didn't know what the then health secretary, Andrew Lansley, was up to. But he did. In opposition, they used to have these so-called post-bureaucratic society seminars where each shadow cabinet member would come and speak and various others joined in conversations and sometimes columnists like me were invited along and David Cameron was there taking notes rather modestly and I remember Andrew Lansley getting up and speaking at one of these saying that his vision was that when something went wrong in a local hospital or there was an issue with some hospitals, it would not be the health secretary who appeared at 10 past 8 on the Today programme, but somebody else down the line, because they were reconfigurating the health service. In its final form, the precise total lack of responsibility for the health secretary went. It was the most ridiculous, unrealistic proposition, given that the Treasury raises the money to pay for the NHS, and therefore the government must have responsibility to some extent as to how that money is spent. But anyway, what replaced it were quangos after quangos, so you have all kinds of blurred lines of responsibility. Who's in charge? The health secretary? NHS England, the big 
Quango set up in the light of those reforms? Is it the local NHS trust? Is it, as in this case, for example, Public Health England, supposedly responsible for the tests, but when interviewed on the Today programme on Friday, one of the senior figures from that Quango said, look, we're getting blamed for all this, but a lot of this isn't our responsibility. And in those blurred lines of accountability and responsibility, the plethora of mediating agencies required to bring about these so-called reforms. And by the way, the juxtaposition, as framed by Cameron and indeed Tony Blair, was reform versus anti-reform, as only the fragmentation of the NHS was a reform. Everything else was anti-reform. And it's really interesting that the prime ministers who've then faced crises of various proportions in the NHS are taken aback by the consequences of their own action. So, for example, Cameron, fearing a flu crisis in the NHS one winter, said to Jeremy Hunt, right, uh, I want you to take control and make sure these hospitals are ready for a winter crisis. And Jeremy Hunt had to say to David Cameron, I'm sorry, but we have no longer got control over those hospitals. We gave that control away. And Cameron was taken aback and then said to Hunt, right, phone every hospital individually or do what you can. Bypass these propositions that we've legislated for. And now Boris Johnson and others facing the biggest crisis since 1945 make big announcements because they are a number 10 of Brexit campaigners and others who have a tendency to mistake an announcement or a campaigning slogan for the hard grind of policy implementation. Uh, we're 100,000 100, tests, 100, do this, we're going to do that. And then they pull the levers and they find there is a confused line of responsibility and accountability. And those reforms... Deeply unfashionable to say it at the time, but those reforms were disastrous. And the government is very lucky to have a national health service. So to some extent, they do have levers still to pull. Compare that with the United States system, which some on the right, not many, but some consider to be a better model in some respects. They're lucky to have that. So they've got a nationally coordinated system of sorts, but it could have been so much better. They could have known more quickly which levers to pull. And as I reflected last week, Johnson, because he's been famous for so long, it's easy to forget how inexperienced he is as a prime minister. And he's never been a departmental cabinet minister. He was in the foreign office, but he was a marginalised foreign secretary with little to do, and what he had to do was prepared for him. He hadn't been a health secretary or an education secretary or so on, where you get a sense of how difficult it is to pull levers and for something actually then to happen. Michael Gove, too, he was education secretary, tried to bring in reforms, most of them misguided and confused. But it took a long time, and then Cummings, Dominic Cummings, his advisor, complained and blamed others and so on. But actually, it's usually the structure, as well as political will. It's now become familiar that the political will in the early phase of this nightmare was not there. There wasn't a recognition of the scale of the problem, even though the nightmare was beginning to deepen in Italy as the first big European country to really suffer. 
So obviously political will is part of the essence of all of this, but that the fragmented NHS is a part of what is happening is also the case. And it is right that they've appointed one single person to try and oversee the testing strategy and to pull all these various agencies together. Won't be easy. But this is another thing that happened in the 80s, 90s, up until now recently. There was this great fashion because there was an assumption certainly up until the Cameron era, that government was deeply unpopular, that the state was always viewed with suspicion, the state as manifested by government activity anyway. And so ministers fearful of having fingerprints on anything at all because of the anti-politics culture in the UK, certainly in England, appointed quango after quango after quango to take kind of responsibility for policy implementation and in some cases policy development. And then every now and again they would find there's some crisis where they are held accountable and rightly so as the elected cabinet minister and yet didn't really have the power to do anything in the first place or to rectify what had ever gone wrong. And yet the media culture in Britain is all about the political figures. You know, Ten Past Eight on the Today programme doesn't exist without a cabinet minister on it. And very few of these chairs of quangos with huge power over policy implementation were known, let alone challenged and interviewed on a regular basis. So in this quango land now, Boris Johnson is trying to get things done, although clearly still suffering from this bloody virus. But that is a side issue, really. If the structures are in place for delivery, a government should be able to get things done. But it's much harder when the responsibility for delivery is distributed all over the place. So some totally unknown figure somewhere, you know, I don't know, Fred Bertels could be running a... Quango of great significance. No one will really know what Fred Bertels is doing or why or who Fred Bertels is. You know, he won't be interviewed on today. It will be some powerless minister who pulls levers and nothing happens. Anyway, I think one of the consequences of this virus, we're seeing it in front of our eyes, is a recognition that clear lines of accountability and responsibility within public funded bodies, whether it's the BBC, the NHS or whatever, are absolutely fundamental. And the myth that fragmentation would lead to efficiencies is being sadly exposed in the context of this crisis. That is one of the things that Keir Starmer can explore. Now he's leader of the Labour Party. His victory was emphatic. The first leader since Blair to have got majorities amongst MPs and all the various other sections, party memberships and so on. And that's in itself important because uh, one of the problems both Ed Miliband and Jeremy Corbyn had is that they weren't elected by most MPs who resented their rise to the top from the moment they got there. I remember when Miliband, Ed Miliband, was elected. It was announced at a Labour Party conference, I think, in Manchester. That very late afternoon, minutes after the announcement, bumping into a couple of Labour MPs saying this is a disaster and so on. And that, to some extent, framed his leadership 
constant mutterings of scathing disapproval from MPs and obviously much louder mutterings of disapproval with Corbyn. That cannot happen now because most MPs have got the leader that they wanted. But of much greater significance, I think, is the the scale of the majority. It was a landslide win for Keir Starmer. Exposes one of the media narratives as being completely wrong. The, the kind of orthodoxy has been that the Labour Party had been in the total grip of a Corbynista sect, They ran everything. They talk about levers. They did pull levers and got what they wanted. And yet here has Keir Starmer emerged with a landslide victory. And the only thing you could say about media orthodoxies in terms of politics is that they are reliably unreliable. And it shows actually that there is still, well, I assume it shows this or else they wouldn't have done it, a pragmatic streak in the membership of that party who want to win, having trawled the streets in the rainy cold of last December and then been slaughtered, they want something different next time. Starmer is elected in the most extraordinary situation. I think I might have mentioned this on last week's podcast. There is a bleak parallel in that Ian Duncan Smith, the Tory leader, got elected very shortly after September the 11th, and few noticed there was, you know, the globe in crisis like now. But Keir Starmer, I think in his opening comments, got the balance absolutely right in that rather surreal video he had pre-recorded, which they played once the result had been announced, surreal in the sense that normally these announcements are made in big halls with people cheering and all the rest of it course not his fault totally impossible in the current dark situation but what was encouraging I think was that while Starmer said Labour would be supportive of the government but also would probe and scrutinize and challenge when they think uh, decisions are mistaken or decisions haven't been taken and he's absolutely right first of all just in terms of the sense of a changed political mood. Corbyn was not one of life's great forensic scrutinizers, if there's such a word as scrutinizer, but you know what I mean. And Starmer clearly is. Anyone who rose to the top in the law can do that. But also, I think, that is a responsibility of an opposition to probe and challenge. Where were the questions? Fair enough for us to sort of point out that Johnson wasn't on top of the case in February when it was clearly becoming a huge issue for the UK as well as other bits of Europe. But nor was Corbyn, who didn't really ask very many questions in early February to mid-February about what the heck the government was doing. When Starmer starts doing that, people will feel a difference in the political mood in the UK. The sense that a government which has had considerable space on the political stage, certainly since the December election, is at least being challenged authoritatively and fairly in the context of the crisis. And anyway, he should do that out of political expediency to Keir Starmer. One of the things that Duncan Smith got wrong when he became Tory leader was 
he was so supportive of what Tony Blair was doing in response to September the 11th. It was one of the calculations Blair made that he would neuter any Tory um, opposition. Blair was with Bush. Duncan Smith fully appreciated and supported Blair being with Bush. Privately, he was saying how courageous Blair was being. But in being totally uncritical of Blair's response and the response he gave after September the 11th was the beginning of the path towards Iraq, which, of course, Ian Duncan Smith supported with even greater gung-ho bravado than Tony Blair. Blair was pursuing his characteristic third way of getting the US to go to the UN. Duncan Smith said he would have supported the war in Iraq even if Bush hadn't gone to the UN. But that gave him no space to develop forensic set of arguments which at least probed some of the calculations and assessments Blair was making towards Afghanistan and Iraq. Full support was no doubt sincere in Duncan Smith's case, but politically wholly inexpedient. So I think Starmer does have the space and the duty to probe a government that is deeply, or number 10, and indeed government, deeply inexperienced, with a capacity to blame others when things start to go wrong. There's a lot of internal tension at the moment. Is you know Clearly, some are blaming civil servants. Some of these agencies, like Public Health England, are getting it in private briefings and so on. And Starmer needs to keep an absolute rigid focus on this number 10 not least actually when half of them are ill because it's even harder to make the right decisions in those circumstances and in the longer term as he implied in his post-victory video there will be all kinds of consequences which are deeply political at the moment people are on the whole just backing the government as they do at the early stages of any national crisis you know thatcher during the falklands actually in iraq even when there was that huge level of visible opposition when the war started it had the backing of most voters and blair actually or his number 10 predicted what they called a baghdad bounce to follow the falklands factor the description of Thatcher's poll bounce after the war. At the moment, there is a lot of support, but the longer-term political consequences are still to be played out, and they will be profound in terms of the economy, in terms of a new revitalized passion for the NHS. I know there's always support, but the passion for it and what it also represents and the degree... which it has been rendered fragile by underfunding the fractured state of the economy in the first place and now facing chronic debts after what we're going through these are all big big issues and big calls for Starmer to take but that's in the longer term so there is I think more space for him than perhaps Many assume at this point where they just see a leader elected on a pre-recorded video while the entire country is focused on other 
matters. It's obviously up to him how he uses this big mandate, but I think there is space for him to make a very big impact, and actually quite, quite quickly. So things are changing so quickly at the moment that it is hard to step back and extrapolate the wider themes, but that's what I'm going to be trying to do here on the Rock and Roll Politics podcast. And because I can't do the live shows at the moment, we're planning, hopefully I'll let you know about these, to do some virtual shows in the coming weeks and months. I suspect it will be months before big gatherings in theatres and so on or concert halls are allowed again. Oh yeah, one other thing. On Tuesday evening on Radio 4, I think it's at 8 o'clock, but also then on the iPlayer for ages, I've got a program out about the Labour Party in the light of this new era that is beginning for them. It includes interviews with all kinds of people, Tony Blair, John Landsman, Gloria De Piero, reflecting on the seats that were lost at the last election. She didn't stand, but her seat that was went to the Conservatives, as did quite a few others, and lots of other people as well. Peter Hayne, actually, who I interviewed him in 1999 when I was 12, and he was a very ambitious young minister in the new Labour government. And he said to me in an interview, he said, Steve, you know what, we risk being gratuitously offensive to the core vote. That was quite a brave thing to say because any hint of disloyalty was absolutely frowned upon at that point. But it was quite prophetic, I thought. So I asked him to reflect on that in the light of what happened in December. And Tony Blair is very interesting about the context of Keir Starmer compared with his when he became Labour leader in 1994. He argues that it's a tougher context than his inheritance in 1994 and, and with, uh, with good cause, actually. So even though I can see the space, I can see the thorny route ahead as well. And, and Tony Blair puts it very well. So whole range uh, John Lansman very interesting about the future of momentum and all that kind of thing so do tune in or listen or download or whatever and I'll see you again very soon thank you so much for listening today and as we all say now it's the new cliche keep well thanks a lot <laughs>